Good morning. You are listening to Action Line on KNY. I am your host, Jordan Lewis. And joining me in the studio, I have two folks from the First Things First Foundation now. I should have written your names down on my notes, but I also only thought one of you was coming. So that's probably why I didn't do that. But would you like to introduce yourselves? Oh, which one of us would it have been? It would have been Don to start. Well, uh, thank you, Jordan. Uh, again, uh, Don Habiger, and we're the uh, First Things First uh, Alaska Foundation, and I'm the executive director. And with me is Frank. Go ahead, Frank. Yeah, Frank Bergstrom on the board. Uh, happy, wonderful time to be here. Great opportunity to talk to Juno about things that are pertinent. That it is, and I've had you on before, and the topic I'm going to want to talk with you both about is also a topic we've hit before, but that is mining, because it is also the last day of mining month. And so how are we looking in terms of mining stuff? Well, that's a great question, uh, Jordan. And uh, you know, I'm gonna start th this uh, uh, time with you and the listening audience, just kind of referring to something that uh, Governor Dunleavy uh, put out. And it sort of celebrates uh, Alaska's um, responsible resource development. And he put out a document, or actually the state of Alaska put out a document called the Alaska Standards. And it was announced uh, May 24th, uh, uh, so just a little bit ago. And really, it kind of uh, chronicles Alaska's ability uh, for st sustainable energy um, and development. And the whole concept is our constitution, which requires that uh, resources are sustainable uh, and perpetual for future generations. So the whole idea that the state of Alaska is doing responsible development is, is paramount, and uh, it is something that uh, we at First Things First Alaska Foundation pay a great deal of attention to. Gotcha. And then Frank, did you wanna add on to that? Oh, just going to say that's a, we are a resource state. State of Alaska is a resource state. We don't grow very much, although we uh, do harvest things from the sea. And we don't manufacture that much, although there are things that we do. Largely what we do is we extract resources, add a little value, send them out to the world to make the products that we consume every day. Gotcha. And I was going to say, I can, I can agree with you on the, we don't grow a lot of things. There's not much of a time frame to do that. But I do, I've always known that we've been a big resource extraction state. Obviously, I mean, the big one I think most people always think of is obviously going to be the oil pipeline. But I think we, we do know all those Trees. We, we do grow trees. We do grow trees. Well, nature grows the trees. We just happen to be in the same space as that. Like, well, my nature grows everything when you come to that. That, that is true. That is true. We'll, we'll say we cultivate trees then. There we go. There is husbandry involved, and it's an important process of uh, taking care of the forest. Get a, bit, get a bit of agriculture in there. That's what we're looking for. And so, and I definitely wanted to hit those because those are also very important. We've talked a lot about uh, stuff with the, namely with the Forest Service in the past on this program. But... I've also talked with some of the mining companies, you know, locally I've talked with, uh, I think the main one I've talked with before is uh, Hecla Greens Creek, I've talked with them before, and sort of talking about how big a role that they played locally, and I don't know if either of you would be able to really talk on that, I mean, you might, I've never, I can never be too sure. <laughs> well, definitely. Our two mining companies here, our two operating mines, Hard Rock Mines, are huge contributors to the economy in a variety of ways. First off, they employ upwards of a thousand people, and then there's uh, uh, support staff uh, and, and support businesses 
So all in all, families, everything, we're probably talking 3,000 people in this town that are directly or indirectly associated with the mining industry. Uh, Greens Creek and Kensington are both uh, directly employing something on the order of 400, 450 people. The average wage in the mining business about $130,000 a year. It's a substantial salary. And uh, it's not only the average, but the starting salaries are in six digits. So it's a tremendous opportunity for kids coming out of school to get into technical fields. And they pay together, they are the two highest property tax paying entities in the borough. So we're talking a lot of money there to the benefit of all, as well as the taxes that uh, employees pay and the contributions that those employees then uh, participate in the economy by spending their their uh, salaries and buying things and paying taxes on the things that they buy. So uh, it's a huge contributor to the economy of, of Juno here in a quiet sort of way. No one makes a big stink about it, but they're a tremendous contribution to our economy. I think if we're talking about our local uh, mines, we have to acknowledge that uh, one of our local mines uh, just ended uh, through, uh, well, they're in the process of a permit uh, extension period. So the U.S. Forest Service is uh, ahead or heading that effort and public comment uh, on the permit process uh, just finished. And if you look at that uh, draft uh, supplemental environmental impact statement, one of the things I noticed in the socioeconomic uh, portion of that uh, uh, permit is that uh, they acknowledge that Greens Creek, in this case, we're talking about Greens Creek since they're in, the, in that permit process, has an annual direct payroll of $49.5 million. And what I find really interesting um, if we take any one of those options, option D, alternative D, really, um, let's let's pick on that one. If we get that extension, if the U.S. Forest Services uh, recommends that as the preferred option or adopts that as the pre- preferred option, then we're talking about, uh, again, that uh, $49.5 million extended for 40-year extension potential life, um, and that's almost $2 billion uh, in direct uh, payroll. That's a chunk of change. No, definitely. And I remember also reading through that statement uh, for some other shows I've done prior, and the, the fact that that is a possibility that through that version of the extension, you could basically make it so the mine lasts probably longer than a lot of folks in town might still be alive for that mine will still be around is, is quite significant if that option were to go forward. And like you said, that's a lot of money in the long term. Well, um, I've been working for 40-some years, and if you think uh, of an extension, um, young person, as Frank was mentioning, um, coming out of high school, going through the university training program, and let's highlight the university. They have a a mine safety program out there, and in fact, uh, the university, UAS, uh, Chancellor uh, Carey out there, uh, wrote a letter of support for the mine because of of that involvement, and that's quite exciting. And and so, just somebody, if you think about it, coming out of high school, uh, one of our high schools uh, getting involved in mining, they could live here there, or have their entire career here if Alternative D is selected. No, definitely. And even I have to admit, 
that while I was at UAS, I had seen, you know, some of those courses before and they, and they caught my attention, even though it wasn't even my area, just the thought of like, okay, well, I could learn more about it and then maybe even just have a better understanding of the industry was, was appealing to me. Just the thought of I could learn about it, even if it ended up not being the, the path that I chose to go down, it was still there. I think that is also a significant part is having that option and having that information available. And like we've said many times before, it's not guys with picks and shovels here. These are uh, very technical fields, engineers and all kinds of other uh, technical fields, um, people in AI, uh, remote operation of uh, vehicles, and uh, all the engineering that goes into planning and properly executing a plan and uh, <clears throat> getting good revenues from what you're doing. So they're producing things for the new economy and they're participating in the new information economy at the same time and the people involved are intimately involved in those things so we all for the standard of living we have we um, we know that we need mineral extraction and processing to get the products that we need and alaska is producing a lot of those things contributing to the new economy i've got a list of well pretty much i could have brought the periodic table here uh <laughs> that they're being produced but some of the the top button ones are chromium and cobalt and manganese uh, vanadium rutile platinum palladium iridium all these lovely metals that um, because really almost everything in the periodic table is a metal and these are the the kinds of things that we can produce here in the way of critical metals in southeast alaska and do it for a long long time to come the most recent study that was done on the mineral estate of the tongas was uh, dates back to 1989 which we at first things first would certainly encourage our agencies to update that report but this was called the caldwell report done by the bureau of mines in 89 therein he listed the author that is listed 38 prospects that passed economic at least uh, a modeled economic analysis of viability 38 deposits that um, had good potential at the time now lots of work to be done and we don't want to talk about forward-looking statements here don't want to get the ire of the sec after us but certainly the mineral endowment of southeast is tremendous and so there is the opportunity here for a very long-term sustained industry gotcha we are going to have to go into our break when we come back we'll talk a bit more about mining and then a little bit about transportation as well you are listening to action line on kiny Welcome back to Action Line. I am still your host, Jordan Lewis. And joining me, I still have the folks from the First Things First Alaska Foundation. Now, before the break, we were talking about some of those 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 key minerals, those key metals for Southeast. We didn't go in depth on those, but I think you have a list of them there right now, Frank. Is that correct? Yeah, I could dig those back out. You bet. Because that has got my attention. Because I know one of the things that often comes up because we're talking renewable and resources, you know, a lot of these metals are required to do renewable energy type stuff, which is very kind of a kind of a bit of a comedy to me sometimes when you think about it. But I see you've got that list now. So what are some of those metals we've got on there? Well, a big one, aluminum, and everybody's familiar with lithium. Probably more important than lithium is nickel, though, as in terms of the basis of renewable or uh, rechargeable batteries, excuse me. Although I know Tesla is big into iron uh, batteries, iron-based um, lithium-ion batteries. 
And uh, there was some other ones here. Well, chromium is a big, big deal. Lead is a, a big part of the uh, economic picture. Cadmium, cobalt, another big, big one. Silver and gold all have both have um, industrial electronic applications. Tungsten, vanadium, zinc. Uh, there's a few. Yeah, I'm sure I missed a half a dozen or more. But potentially, but I can think of a lot of the uses for a lot of those. Like, no big one for gold is like your computer chips and those sorts of processors. Mm-hmm. You need it for that. Uh, lead. I mean, oftentimes people when they hear lead, they think about pencils. But when I <laughs> oftentimes when I hear lead, I also think about uh, sealing for nuclear materials that could be shipped out and used for purposes for that. And so and they're all very key things. And to know that they're kind of on the the radar of potential within Southeast is quite significant, I would think. I think uh, one of the things you have to acknowledge, particularly when you talk about the list of uh, minerals that, that are available here in Southeast, you have to recognize the rare earth minerals uh, down in, I believe, the Bokan uh, mine out there on Prince of Wales. Um, and just the opportunity that Alaska has, particularly Southeast Alaska has, uh, to develop some of these resources. And I think you also have to recognize that uh, rare earth metals uh, may be a security issue. Um, all of our, my understanding is that the majority, if not uh, nearly all of our rare earth metals are controlled by China at this point in time. And if we're going to consider uh, a security of our nation, we have to consider uh, access to these uh, rare earth minerals. Yeah, Don, and it's not just the access to the minerals, it's the processing of them once the ores are extracted from the ground. And that is where China's really got the stranglehold on the industry. So we can mine the stuff, but then we got to put it in a box and send it to China. So then it pretty much just becomes Chinese stuff. Um, What we need in this country is once again, and we did in the past have the uh, processing capability, but uh, we need to reestablish that in order to bring back that critical mineral to this country so that we can defend our economy. And I think a lot of that would stem from, you know, getting those processing facilities within the U.S. So then you're not, you end up with a circle. You're not going outside of this. You're just doing an internal loop and keeping all that within the U.S. itself. Yeah, and the world's been in a globalization period for some time, a couple decades. It's not the first time it's gone globalized. Um, and then something happens like World War One, and uh, that kind of and the economies of the world implode back. No, don't implode back. They just simply split apart into local regional economies. We're kind of headed in that same direction right now. And so it points out that you just can't get everything from someplace else at the time and in the quantity and at the price that you want. Right. I think and that's somewhat tricky because it's through globalization we've had sort of the development of like the tech industry and those sorts of sectors and how they've played a role in sort of economies across the globe. And so while we still need that globalization in order to have some of the stronger aspects of the economy that we have now, we also need to remember the basis for those things, if that makes sense. Well, we want to have a rounded economy, and we can't just be consumers of everything. We actually have to produce something. And we produce a lot of services, but um, if we produce our goods once again here in this country, and this is philosophy, of course. We're not so much just talking about uh, what we're mining and where we're going to mine it. But um, if, if we want to consume things here in this country, then it shouldn't necessarily, in a philosophical standpoint, let's just talk that, uh, on the backs of some poor 
beggar of a worker in Bangladesh. Is that fair? And I would argue that that's not fair, but then that also requires us to try and think of, I mean, because the U.S. likes to always play this sort of larger role of helping out in places around the globe. And so it's like, how do we think about economic factors that maybe we can influence in those areas and then maybe that can help improve and so we don't have those problems. Granted, we're also we're still in the philosophical realm. And so then that can go into a whole lot of places. So I don't think we should stay on that for too long. I also don't want people to be like, I'm getting into opinion because philosophy tends to get that way. So I want to be careful about that. Well, we're just into, uh, we're good free marketers, and if we concentrate on one supplier of this or one supplier of that, you are limiting competition. And if you limit competition, invariably, it'll end up in increases in prices and boycotts and, well, just difficulties, shall we say. So we're into diversification. We want to see as free a market in the world as possible and allow everybody in the world the opportunity to achieve the level of and standard of living that we have here in this country. And uh, for the greater benefit of all, I, th- I think open markets are the way to go. A little nudge here, a little nudge there, sure, but uh, as free as is reasonably achievable. I think uh, I have to go back to opening comments about, um, you know, the Alaska standard, which is doing things correctly. A buzzword we heard uh, more often uh, a few years ago was value added. Can we bring in value added processes that increase uh, our economic uh, viability here in the state of Alaska? And first things first would say, yes, we can whether that is bringing in a processing process, a processing uh, environment, I guess, uh, to, to uh, render rare earth minerals into use, usable uh, products. I think we can do that. A cheap energy is part of that uh, solution. So all of these things play together. And just having an Alaska standard open for business is very important to Southeast. Yeah, Don makes a great point there. One of the aspects of Southeast Alaska being that it is a flooded archipelago of islands, highly mineralized, and all these resources are pretty close to tidewater. So that's one of the main, uh, if not main, it's it's a big, big advantage to uh, our resources here is that uh, you take them out of the ground, you put them on a boat, and suddenly they can go anywhere they want to go. We'd love to add as much value to them as possible here, but we have access to markets. Gotcha. All right. And now I want to make sure we hit this topic because I know, Don, you wanted to talk about it a little bit, which is talking about how our transportation is looking. So where would you like to hit with that? Well, thank you, uh, Jordan. I appreciate that. Uh, one of the things that we at First Things First have been uh, talking about for a long time is just Juno access. But more importantly, uh, it is utilizing marine transportation, uh, probably in shorter links, uh, and optimize that marine transportation with a road system here in Southeast Alaska. And so we kind of wanted to make sure that the public um, didn't forget about this issue. Uh, it doesn't seem like Juno Access has been in the conversation uh, recently, um, and we just wanted to bring it back up. So 
ultimately, um, we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, transportation, Juno access, and whether the uh, current transportation system is optimized to meet our needs. Um, one of the things I think I will quickly point out is that if you look at uh, the, the, the state's uh, 2020 uh, marine transportation utilization uh, uh, chart, uh, you'll notice that there's a, a, uh, a decline in just uh, usership. And, and so the question is, what is causing that design uh, decline? Is it the vessel age? Is it just uh, uh, budget issues? And whether we can depend upon uh, that decline continuing here in Southeast and hampering transportation, or if we can change that trajectory. First things first, believes we can change that tra uh, trajectory trajectory, there we go, um, but we're going to have to include hard surfaces. Gotcha. And that was, and, and I think there's a lot of things to look at there. Obviously, you mentioned, you know, is it the age of the vessels? Is it, you know, things like that? And I think maybe, I mean, a certain budget can play a role into that. I think, I don't think that would be a controversial thing to say, because obviously the budget's always a hot topic every year, kind of comes with the territory of that. And so I'm certain that could play a role. Age of the vessel could, because then you'd have people being like, oh, I'm missing this modern amenity that this vessel might not have because it's older. And so then you run into the problem of, oh, do I update it or do we leave it alone? Because that helps us save money, which is also another thing that everyone is always concerned about. And so I think it, it is going to be an interesting conversation to see where that goes. I'll keep my eye on the... I'll keep my eye on things, keep my finger on the pulse, as it were, and to kind of keep a, seeing where you guys are heading with that. Now, we do have a little bit of time left here, so I wanted to give you both a chance to offer some sort of closing comments on really anything that we've talked about today. Let me jump in there. I'm just going to follow up on what Don had to say. We did um, some work pulling together the information that was available during the last EIS on Juno Access, or I prefer to call it the extension of Highway 7. In uh, the situation, if we did extend Highway 7 north, uh, the family cost to drive up to Haines Gagway was $23. And if we had the no action alternative of continuing to run boats, it costs $311. So it's over 10 times as much at that time. Now, if we inflate the cost of fuel, well, it affects both of them, probably affects the ferries more so because of the lack of uh, uh, mileage, shall we say, on a ferry. But it's the ratio there is going to be pretty much the same. So it costs 10% to drive if we had a road for the, um, for the average family here, as it would to take the ferry. Plus, that ferry expense is only 10% of the overall expense. The state subsidizes 90% of the cost of sending somebody up there. Plus, there's another 10 here coming up. It The ferry is only satisfying 10% of the projected, this is the EIS information now, 10% of the projected uh, travelers. So the amount of traffic that would happen with a highway could be as much as 10 times more in terms of vehicles, cars, people moving, uh, than we can, we can have the capacity to move right now with the ferries. Now, 
that's a huge, huge advantage to having a road. And this is something that we've looked at for years now. And for the folks that really love having a ferry, well, it's kind of like Uber. You know, Uber comes to your door and picks you up and drops you off at the far end. Great for Uber, but uh, it's not necessarily an efficient way of moving people, material supplies around an area. And that's why we call it the highway department. And it's a highway system. Highways are the way to go. They're the cheapest way to go. People can move. Economies can function. Material can travel back and forth. We get business. We get jobs. People have fun. Gotcha. Well, I am going to have to cut us off now because we are over time. But, Don, Frank, I'd like to thank you both for coming on. It's always interesting talking with you, especially on the economics end of things. I usually don't get into that too much just with my other guests. But it's always fun talking with you both. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. You bet. Pleasure's all ours. All right. You've been listening to Action Line on KINY.